Um, this is so interesting. So we had, we had, um, the family, the book, the family history of his dad and his mom, and we were looking through it. And he was just talking about whatever, and Emma was sitting next to him, so they were kind of just shooting the breeze, and I was looking through it with Kendall. And then he was just started talking about, like, he was like, yeah, my dad, like, never told me. And he's like, I think this is this is a thing from the Great Depression. I think he said that. He said, I think this is a thing that has been left over from the Great Depression. He said, my dad never told me that he loved me. Wow, that sucks. He's like, whoa. Right, right? Like, or, like, never, like, that wasn't the way that he talked. And he's like, he's like, so I hope that I've been better to my kids, right? Uh, to to my grandkids, right? I hope that I've been more loving and more kind. And I was like, that's such an interesting perspective because mm-hmm. you only ever hear like the lowest generation. You only ever hear the, the, the furthest down generation on that kind of thing. You never hear the grandparents' perspective, right? Of like, we, I think, I think that's a really interesting narrative of, it's not that we are all of a sudden changing the world. It's that the world is all of the time changing and we are part of the change and we're moving from step to step, growing and improving. Welcome to Screenwalkers, a brother-sister podcast where we, the walkers, tell you what's on our screens. My name is Becca. And I am Josh. Josh, we're finally getting towards the end of this. The tunnel, the end of the tunnel is in sight. We can see the light. Because we're finally doing your last set of eight today. Or your last yeah, set yeah. of sixteen today. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I feel like we can get through this and then we can you know, get through the rest of the bracket and move on to bigger and better things. Not that this isn't good. So kind of just to tell people what's going to be up in the next one, I think our next episode is going to be our final for the the bracket. What we're going to do, I think, uh, for our second round is just do rapid fire, um, just kind of going with our gut, picking which one's our favorites out of the ones that we have already eliminated. Uh, and mm-hmm. then after that, we'll go away, watch all of our semifinalists, and then whittle the semifinalists down to our last one and our big one. Yeah. Hopefully with a little bit less long-form discussions than we've been having, because uh, otherwise it's going to take a long time. So yeah. we'll see what happens. Yeah. Okay, I, I got to be honest about something. I'm really nervous. I really <laughs> shot myself in the foot. Because I want oh, no. 1917 to go do well. I want it to go a long way. But uh-huh. I have it paired against Prince of Egypt. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. not sure, I'm not sure. It's a, that's a hard one. Um, have you seen Blinded by the Light or Yesterday? <laughs> we had this discussion. No, and neither have you. <laughs> and neither have I. I have seen the first half of Blinded by the Light. So I can tell you what I liked about the first half of the movie. Okay, well, do that then. Let's let's do your little introduction, and then we'll. Okay, Blinded by the Light is a 2019 British 
comedy drama film directed by Gurinder Chadha. She's a female British director of Indian origin. And most of her films explore the lives of Indians living in England, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. It stars uh, Vivek Chalra. I'm going to mispronounce all these names. Uh, Kulvinder Gear, Mira Ganatra, Nell Williams, Aaron Fagura, Dean Charles Chapman. I also know that it stars Haley Atwell. Yeah, and the basic premise of this movie is uh, there's a kid uh, played by uh, Vivek Chalra. His name is Javed Ch- uh, Khan. He's Pakistani. Oh. And he's living in the 1980s during when there's a lot of culture clash between immigrants that are moving from Pakistan and India into the UK. 1987 is like prime peak time for Margaret Thatcher, who was like super pro-imperialism. So, yes. So there was a lot of hate, a lot of xenophobia against, Mm -hmm. and this is a part of British history that's really not mentioned a lot. We don't usually during the, about the same time, we talk about other aspects of the world, right? We talk about the dissolution of the Soviet Union that happened around this time. We talk, we're, we're not really focusing on uh, England. So I think this is a really interesting place to set it. Yeah, for sure. It was inspired by the life of Sarfraz Manzor, uh, who co-wrote the script. So this is kind of him telling his own story. Um, and it's about his love, the love that he found for Bruce Springsteen, the boss. So basically this kid, uh, he starts going to a new school and there's like one other Pakistani kid or South Asian kid. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a fan of Bruce Springsteen. So he gets Javed to like into it and he starts, starts getting him interested in the music. Uh, and he finds that his music is very relatable because the thing about Bruce Springsteen's music, I'm sorry, this isn't really going to be about Blinded by the Light. This is going to be about Bruce Springsteen's music <laughs> is that it's like, it's very much like working man, right? It's very from the perspective of people who go to work and they go to school and they go home and they feel trapped all day and they feel like they can't get out. This is who he writes music for. And so it has a big effect on him. Now his his dad is very like traditional, and so he doesn't like the contemporary music, that, especially like since it's not culturally appropriate for Javed. That's what his uh, dad believes, right? So there's that conflict that's part of the movie. And eventually, I know that he goes to America to like go to a concert of his or something. I can't remember. I only got about halfway through the movie because I was on a flight. But rip. Yeah. Nice. So what did you like about that first half of the movie? Well, I mean, I guess you mentioned it already, right? It's the the like the way he's able to like express his love for Springsteen and how like this artist specifically helps this specific boy in his specific challenges, which is Yeah. I really like ch- the way that he um it portrays the music as like moving his soul and the way that he, so that, that doing that, that like listening to the music 
like it will have him like dancing and doing stuff to the music while he's listening to it and it'll show the lyric it's like a little lyric video kind of or a music video where it shows the lyrics on things and like move it interacting with like there's a storm that's happening at one point and he's listening to this music about like being grounded to the dirt and like not feeling like he can get anywhere in life and so it's relevant with the storm right it's like a storm inside of him and the words are like appearing on a garage door and whirling around in the storm so it's pretty cool i think mm-hmm. the art direction is really cool with it nice that's awesome yeah um that's all yeah. i really have to say about blind about the light of course i haven't seen it so maybe at the end it just gets really bad and i, I won't like it anymore but <laughs> i just can't imagine that happening honestly i think it would yeah. it would take a big fumble for that to happen but yeah I think it'll be good. I I, th- I think you know I like the first half. I think I would like the second half pretty well too. Blinded by the Light is all about learning who you are and being able to connect to things, especially connect through music and understand the world around you better. Right. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, I think has a bit of a different tone. Also, Blinded by the Light is about Bruce Springsteen's music. Yesterday is about the Beatles. The Beatles. Yeah. And I, I do think that it's really interesting the way that they kind of approach this, because like yesterday is kind of like absurdist light fantasy. Yes. Whereas Blinded by the Light is like semi-autobiographical. Yesterday, 2019, also also a comedy film. Wait, was that last one a comedy film? Comedy drama, know. yeah. This one yeah. is a romantic comedy film. It was directed by Danny Boyle. It stars Himish Patel. Who I love. He's so good. He was in Tenet. Nice. Uh, Lily James, who is great. Joel Fry, Ed Sheeran, and Kate McKinnon are the ones that are on here. And it does not star. Anna it does not star Anna de Armas. Do you think Anna de Armas was in it? No. It, so she was in it. This is a thing. Have you not heard anything about this? No, not at all. So yesterday has been in the news recently because mm-hmm. two men sued. Whoever made this movie, who made this movie? Oh, wait, no, I did hear about this because they thought false advertising because she wasn't in it. <laughs> yeah, so they sued because she was in the trailer and she wasn't in the actual, she was cut from the her part was her cut part from the movie. Cut. Yeah, oh, that's and so funny. They just recently, like, the news came back and they won. Wow, yeah. So, like, now movies cannot put things in their trailers unless they're going to be in the movie. Films can be edited like right up until the premiere. Like people will That's just what do whatever, I was thinking, right? right? Like there are so many movies where the end result, even the day before it comes out, is different from what you would expect. Like how, how do you expect to cut a trailer properly when the film isn't even done? <laughs> like you can't my, know. My favorite example of this is uh, the trailers for Venom. The trailer was like. It's this gritty, hardcore, like horror movie, and then, and then it was like a buddy comedy film. Oh, like a buddy comedy. <laughs> it was Which, so bizarre. Yeah, it worked out in Venom's favor, though. Like, let's be real. I think that's about the best, like the best reception a Venom film could have ever possibly gotten, especially for a Sony, not a, like a full Marvel production. And like, especially <laughs> since Spider Man wasn't in it. So I I can't really talk about why yesterday is great. 
Um, so I do, I do know a little bit about the, the plot though. I know that like, uh, so Hamish Patel's character, his name is Jack and he is like a struggling, uh, performer. He like has a guitar and he'll go and like do little gigs, but he like hasn't gotten a break. And then there's like a global power outage and he is hit by a bus during the global power outage. And when he, wow. Yes. Uh, and when he recovers, he's the only one that remembers Beatles songs. He's the only one that remembers that the Beatles were a thing, that they existed at all. Um, it's like he dropped into an alternate universe where the Beatles never existed. Yeah. The Beatles never got as big. And so he's able to get big because he uses the music of the Beatles to get big. And his love interest is played by Lily James. And there's this whole thing where like, she feels like she's growing apart from him. And at the end they get back together and he like announces at the end of the movie, I'm going to spoil this. I'm sorry. I don't believe in spoilers that much. He announces at the end of the movie that like the music isn't his and he like retires and then he gets together with his girlfriend and that's the end of the movie. Yay. Uh... Yay. Um, Ethan. Mm-hmm. You want to say anything about the movie? Sure. Okay. Here's Ethan to tell us about yesterday and if it's a good movie. Hooray. Hi, Ethan. Hello, I'm Ethan. I've been told I'm a cat. So, yesterday, huh? Yesterday. Tell us about yesterday. All right. So, I guess, I don't know. The thing with yesterday is I went into it expecting a comedy, and really, it was a lot more than that. You know, I feel like calling it a rom com is a little bit reductive, honestly. Like,. The term rom-com is pretty reductive in itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just because, like, you expect it to be like, oh, funny song or funny movie about like this guy being like taking over for the Beatles, basically. But then it becomes like this whole like emotional search where he's searching himself, like, wait, can I really be doing this kind of thing? Yeah, that's interesting. Like, can I really be doing this in terms of like? Is he worried about like copyright? So, Is he worried so, about well, like, like just like the morality of it? I guess so. Like, there's okay. a scene. There's there's a couple scenes I have in mind to kind of illustrate that point. I guess the first one right. that I'm thinking of is um, there's a scene where he gets confronted before one of his concerts by two other people who also remember the Beatles, right? Okay, and yeah. At first, you think they're going to like try and shut him down, right? But what they do is they're like, thank you so much for letting us hear these songs again. Mm-hmm. Because they're like, we love this music so much, like we wouldn't be able to listen to it if it wasn't for you re-releasing the songs, basically. And then the mm-hmm. second part of it, these same people, because he's having like second thoughts at this point, they send him to a house on a beach. And when he gets to the house, John Lennon lives in that house, and he's still alive. Wow, okay. So like... John Lennon, I guess, like, because he never got famous, he never got shot, right? And he has this really emotional sit-down with John Lennon where, of course, John has no idea what's going on the whole time, right? Because he has no idea why this guy's talking to him. But then it's this really almost like eye-opening experience of, like, what I'm doing isn't necessarily affecting the Beatles, I guess, right? Which makes you think, okay, he's just going to go for it. But then Mm -hmm. he does, like, he has this super emotional moment on stage where he's like, I can't take credit for this. And then he like, he confesses the whole thing. His girlfriend leaves her, I think fiance at that point. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> to be with him. 
Wow. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure they're engaged. I'm not really sure. Um, oh. Yeah. Oh, and then the, the best part of the movie at the end, they're singing. I can't remember what song they're singing. Some classic Beatles song. But they're the um, they're like music teachers together in elementary school or something. It's really cute. Oh, cute. It's a nice yeah. ending. Nice. That sounds lovely. I'll have to give that a try sometime. Yeah, it's a really it's a really nice movie. It's really good. Like because it ended up being so much more than I possibly imagined it could have been. Like some of the best parts, like he becomes a roadie for Ed Sheeran. Or not a roadie, like he opens for Ed Sheeran on oh, a nice. tour. <laughs> and that's how he kind of gets big is because Ed Sheeran's like, hey, I like your music. So he goes with Ed Sheeran. And I don't know, like it, it has a lot of good comedic beats, but it also has a lot of like more near the end, of course, when he's kind of like struggling with himself. These like more like, I guess, just emotional things where he's like very introspective and he kind of realizes that he isn't becoming like he's become a person he doesn't want to be. Yeah, it's great. It's a good movie. Yeah. Hooray. Thank you. Yay. Anything else You're you want to say? No, I'm good. Cool. Well, thanks so much for joining us. First guest on the podcast, Ethan. Woo! Yay! I'm a cat. Yay. Yeah, you're a cat. <laughs> That's right. You're yeah. You're a YouTuber cat in the background. I am the cat. You're the cat. Yep. Thanks, we'll have to get you on for a full guest starring spot on the episode sometime. Let us know what you want to talk about. Like we we should have Star Wars sequels debate. Ooh, Star Wars sequel debate. I feel like that would get contentious quickly. Fight, 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 fight. But it could also get views because if people want something, they want their their opinion or a wrong opinion on uh, I guess that's fair. About Star Wars. Okay. So I've seen part of Blinded by the Light. Ethan has mm-hmm. seen all of yesterday. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm not in a, a correct position that I can cor- like adequately say which I think when, when I think wins. So I'm going to uh, give it to you between our you two things. Literally none of it. Like, what are you talking yes. about? Between these oh two, which one do you think would win? And I guess it's which one do I want to watch more? And I guess maybe yesterday is the one I want to watch more. Cause a, it's on a streaming service that I can actually watch. Lock it on. I was going to put yesterday too, just cause like Ethan put his thing in and it was much more detailed than anything that we could have talked about. Yeah, and uh, I liked Ethan's take actually because, like, when I first heard of this, like, I kind of like I feel I don't even remember what I was doing, but like, I kind of had the feeling that if I watched this film, I would get secondhand embarrassment from it. But the way Ethan is describing mm-hmm. it, I feel like maybe that's not going to happen. Yeah, and that makes okay. me feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, I, the parts that you think you would get secondhand embarrassment from, I think they're well inverted. Yeah, Which exactly. Is the thing that I liked about Tiger Hunter. I just like it when they do that in movies. Yeah, like just make okay. you feel good instead of making you feel crappy. Yep. Now on to right. two movies that I have seen. Hooray! I've seen one of these, and it was a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the one that you have seen. You have okay. seen Catch Me If You Can. That's correct. Yes. And Catch uh, Me If You I Can. For... Okay, go no, for go it. Ahead. You can, you can do it. I have to pull it up first, but okay, okay. Here we go. Catch Me If You Can is a 2002 American biographical crime comedy drama directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks with Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, Natalie Bay, and Amy Adams and James Brolin. 
in, in the screenplay by Jeff Nathanson. I'm just I'm so sorry, Wikipedia. I'm just going to keep reading. The screenplay by Jeff Nathanson is based off of the quote unquote autobiography of Frank Abnegale, who claims that before his 19th birthday, he successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan-American World Airways pirate. Pilot, excuse me, a a Georgia doctor and a Louisiana parish prosecutor. The, the truth of his story is questionable. It's how the beginning ends. Uh, which, like, yeah, it's all based off of Abigail's book. And, yes. like, he's serving time for scams. but Or he served time for scams. I think he's he free now. But, he is, yeah. so, what happens in the movie happened in real life. Where yeah, he, like he caught in something, right? Yeah, he was he was caught, and then the FBI was like, "Hey, you know this better than anyone. Come work mm. for us." Yeah, and he works for them now. Still, I yeah. think I think he also is like a public speaker. This is a side note. We can probably cut this out. I just I don't know. I was like thinking about how many Leo films we've had over our run of this thing. Uh-huh. And like just like feeling bad about it, just because like <laughs> I don't, there's like plenty of awful evil people that work in Hollywood, and like in terms of evilness, Leonardo DiCaprio is like kind of on the lower end. <laughs> like at least he's not dating minors, but yeah. like he is dating women half his age, and uh-huh. that makes me feel gross. And yeah. I don't, I don't know, but like he's still a really talented actor, and he was doing a lot of good work in the 2000s, 2010s. Like, uh-huh. I don't know. I feel like this is just me absolving my my own conscience. <laughs> well, I think that you have to you have to do a little bit of separation of art from the artist, right? Because Leonardo DiCaprio, he's a really good actor. Yeah, he's done some really really good stuff. He's also not the greatest guy ever, but he's also not the worst guy ever. He's definitely not the worst guy ever. But so, like, especially with films, I think it's really interesting because films are so collaborative as art. Yeah, like. Like, if a director is a bad person, you can probably see that coming through because it's usually, like, the director's vision, right? But there's so yeah. many people that work on a film. There's so many people who's hands on it at any at any given point that, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't really... <laughs> like, it's like it's collaborative, right? Whereas with something where you've got, like, I don't know, J.K. Rowling, who is, like, you know, like, she is the one off... Like, there are editors, like, book editors, and she's got agents and stuff. Yeah. But, like, it's... Harry Potter is pretty solidly her own vision, mm-hmm. and so people don't feel as bad, or people feel worse, I guess, when they try to separate art from the artist in that case. Yeah, because uh-huh. it's her, right? But it's easier to do it when it's film because, like, there's so many people working in film, like yeah, that work on any film. Yeah, uh, the uh, the percentage of it that is actually the actor is so much mm. smaller in that it's case. So much right. smaller than like an author, yeah, or an artist or even like a musical artist. Like it's really interesting to me. Very cool. And so that's my little uh, <laughs> spiel I mean, about Frank Abigail is not exactly the best person ever either. So. Yeah. Um it's 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 pronounced Frank Abignail. Abignail. I'm so sorry. I'm going Ab- to continue to get it wrong. So what what the thing that is really interesting to me about this scene movie there's one scene in particular right so he's been running the whole movie the person chasing him is Tom Hanks play uh, well Carl Hanratty who's played by Tom Hanks um and he eventually finds him and he finds him in France and then he's arrested by the French police 
and then he's extradited to the United States, and he is sentenced to prison. Uh, one day, Carl comes in, like ha- says, "Hey, come work. You know, like you know, I have some work that you might be able to relate to." And so Frank is allowed to come into the FBI and work on the financial crimes unit. But then he's like, I don't want to do this. I want to go be like free. I want to go, go be who I was before. Right. And he's in the airport. He's posing as a pilot again. He's walking down this, there's this long tunnel and there's this scene where Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio are just walking. I can't remember the whole thing. I'll have to watch the scene again. Tom Hanks's character is like, why are you, who are you, who are you running from? What are you, you're running from yourself. There's no one chasing you anymore. No one's going to chase you. You can do whatever you want. I'm not going to chase you. You have to stop living a lie. You have to live your real life is kind of the, the vibe of what he says. And so then Frank goes back to work and he, he starts working with Carl. And I think that scene is so powerful because the movie is all about Frank and his desire to be anyone else, right? We're not talking about actual Frank. We're, this may apply to actual Frank. Yeah, yeah. Right? The fictional character that we are trying to relate to through the screen. He is all about, like, he just does not want to be who he is. He wants to be somebody else. It's a form of escapism for him, right? And he can do it so easily. This fraud, fraud comes so easily to him. And eventually, the message for us and the message that at, that's at the end of the movie is you have to be yourself. You, if if you try to be someone else, you'll just you'll we'll just fall fail. you'll just fall flat. Mm-hmm. So it's been such a long time since I've seen the movie, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> I may be romanticizing that scene. It may not, may not have been as I want it to be, but. I'm sh- no, I'm sure it's good. I mean, it's Steven Spielberg. He's pretty good at doing that kind of thing. Yeah, the rest of the movies, the rest of the movie is entertaining and it's fun. It's a nice chase. Uh, there's mm-hmm. some really close calls, and you're like, "Oh, he's Hank's gonna get him," and he doesn't get him, and you're like, "Oh, uh, so it's yeah, pretty fun." It's so funny. And it's a it's a musical. So it, they turned it into a musical. Yeah. Well, yeah this this movie is not a musical, but there is a stage musical based on the movie. Call Catch Me If You Can. Yes. So, if you want to watch that, I'm sure that's also good. Uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page again, and it says, uh, before Spielberg was brought in to direct, David Fincher, Gore Verbinski, Verbinski, Lassie Hallstrom, Milos Forman, and Cameron Crowe were all considered to direct. And I think it's a fun thought experiment to think about just how different the movie would be if any of the others had directed it except for Spielberg. Because, like, as much as I love Spielberg, he's extreme. He's an extremely talented director. He's iconic for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. But like, I think watching West Side Story really, his version of West Side Story really cemented this for me. That he is like the ultimate rule of learn the rules so you can break them. Except he never breaks them. He just knows the rules and he does them perfectly every time. <laughs> like, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, he just he knows. Like, he's very good at like his cinematography. Mm-hmm. and like what he wants and like capturing his vision like he's never really been that experimental about it like yeah. i guess he has been a little bit experimental with like visual effects with like the jaws stuff and the jurassic park stuff right but like mm-hmm. beyond that like he's never really been experimental with his camera work he's never really been experimental with his narratives 
Um, David Fincher, Gore Verbinski, Lassie Hallstrom, Mila Schwerman, and Cameron Crowe all have been in their own different ways. And I just, but like all in <laughs> separate, really fascinating ways. Like yeah. so many different people, right? With so many, di- like such different styles. It's just, mm-hmm. I want everybody's different version of this film. Yeah. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Go on and tell me about uh, Ford v. Ferrari. You have not seen Ford v. Ferrari. I have not seen Ford before. You and Ethan both keep telling me that I need to watch it. You assure me yep. that I will like it, we even both... though it looks so much just like a racing film. Another racing film. <laughs> <laughs> it's cars all over again. Ethan heard you say that. He would have your hide for heresy, I think. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised, actually. Totally. Um, Rebecca Don't tell said him. that Ford v Ferrari was just another <laughs> racing film. Oh. I haven't seen it. <laughs> okay, so let me introduce this, and then maybe I'll let Ethan back on, and he can talk about this movie because I think maybe he can talk about it better <laughs> than I can. Okay. Ford v Ferrari is a 2019 American sports drama film. Mm. It was directed by James Mangold, um, and written by several different people. It stars Matt Damon, Christian Bale, John Bernthal, Katriona Mary Balf, uh, Tracy Letts, and Josh Lucas. And it's the story of Ken Miles and Carol Shelby. Uh, Carol Shelby himself being a former race driver, race car driver, who was the only American up until that point to win Le Mans, which is a 24-hour race in France. You drive The car has to be going around the track for 24 hours, and you have two drivers that can be in this car. And can yeah. go around it, swap out, and you know, you get gas in it and stuff, but gotta go around. And then whichever car goes the furthest is the car that wins at the end of the 24 hours. Um, so basically, what happens is uh, Ford, Henry Ford II, who is the grandson of Henry Ford I, uh, not, to, not his son, right? Edsel, sorry, Edsel was his son, but Henry Ford II is like we need to make our company more uh, like more productive. We need to be better. We're kind of failing right now. This is in 1963. Okay. And so Lee Iacocca, who is famous for a lot of different things, uh, mostly making this company very successful and several yeah. other companies. And the Mustang. And the Mustang. He's famous for the Mustang, <laughs> the car <laughs> that you all know and love. Of course, classic. He's played by John Bernthal. Everywhere. Okay. I I love Lee Cook in this film because he's played by John Bernthal and he's just like a happy guy. And uh, he's like, like he's on like the good guys team basically. Like he wants he wants Shelby and Miles to do well. Uh, he's like, we need to buy Ferrari and we can make good looking cars that people will want to buy and drive because they look good, right? Uh. Kind of a slight to Ford, but their cars did look bad, so it's fine. <laughs> Fair. Um, so he flies over to Italy and proposes a deal to Ferrari to purchase their company because Ferrari's going bankrupt. Uh, then Enzo Ferrari, the owner and uh, founder of Ferrari, uses their offer to get fiat to buy them he acts like he's going to buy ferrari but instead he tricks fiat into buying ferrari yeah he acts like ford is going to buy ferrari 
And then he oh, sends he sends a message over to Fia and says, "Hey, you guys can buy us." Gotcha. Okay. Right. So that the so that he gets more money out of the deal. Sure. Yeah. Like he's using the different offers to be competitive. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so then, and he like insults uh, Ford while doing it. And so then, it's like literally Henry Ford the second's like, "Well, they insulted me, so we're gonna beat them at racing." <laughs> <laughs> so he hires Carol Shelby, who is, you know, if you've ever heard of Shelby cars, mm-hmm. uh, he is the maker of those and he's a retired driver. He's like, I need you because you've, you're the only American that's won Le Mans. And Shelby knows a guy named Ken Miles, who is a British racer. He's like, you can help me design the best car and you can drive the best car because you're the best driver that I know. And it's mm-hmm. all about, it's all about Ken Miles and Carol Shelby and how they kind of keep getting screwed over a little bit by Ford Motor, Motor Company. Sure. Because they have like they want to maintain the image and they want to do all this stuff. And Ken is all about racing. He just wants to race. Racing is in his blood. And he's so good at it. And this movie has the most beautiful shots. Like the cinematography was so, so good. The way that they portray the racing. It's not just like, oh, they're zooming around the track. You feel the energy in the way that the car is moving and the exciting things that are happening. It makes you invest in the story. Mm-hmm. Through, just just through the way that the camera moves with the cars. And the music too. I shouldn't I shouldn't uh slight the music music. because it works it all works so well together to make these cool scenes so i'm going to turn over to ethan and he's going to tell you more about it excellent ethan can talk about this don't you worry would you say this is your favorite movie no i wouldn't say so okay but it it is up there very good one welcome back ethan welcome back welcome back all right so ford v ferrari yeah so the big thing right with ford v ferrari for me is that like the biggest surprise when I watched it is that you go into it, right? It's Ford v Ferrari. You expect it to be like plucky Americans going up against the Italian snobby powerhouse that is Ferrari. But then it turns out, no, no, it isn't though, because it's actually Ken Miles and Carol Shelby versus Ford, like just versus like corporate wow. America. And it's so good. <laughs> Cause like just saying, right. Like, they keep running into problems when Ford wants to do it their way. But then, like, that, they know that that isn't the best way, I guess, really, right? So, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it is a very interesting movie in that regard. But also, like Josh was kind of saying, the way it depicts racing is just absolutely flawless. And I would like to know, Becca, what the heck you mean by another racing movie? <laughs> when have you ever seen a racing movie that is just another racing movie? Cars first and foremost. That's okay, a racing don't you movie. dare slander cars, <laughs> Becca. I'm not slandering cars. <laughs> I know, like the love. There have been racing movies that they're out there. I don't know. Yes, and they're all pretty darn good. <laughs> I guess it's not like a racing movie specifically. Like that's not what made me not want to watch it. Yeah. It seems like another movie as a, like a vehicle for projection for like white men i guess like it's got like it, uh-huh. it has like all of the white men in hollywood in it 
Like, and I don't know, it came, it felt exactly the way Top Gun Maverick felt to me that like when everybody was complimenting it, it's so hard to separate like actual good praise, like good faith, like praise for films like Ford Mm -hmm. v Ferrari and Top Gun Maverick, because like the same critics that like say that it's good are also the same critics that like bash films directed by women just because they're directed by women right yeah, or like yeah. and oh, like sure. like and it's impossible to trust those critics when it comes mm-hmm. to films like that. but like those are the only voices i hear when it comes to films like so i never know yeah. if it's good or not you know uh, yeah. so like no, I, I think i think that's a really good point actually because i feel like this movie fits into the exact same realm as top gun maverick where you totally yeah. could just make it a movie about cars, right? Where yeah, like it, Maverick could have been just a movie about planes. Yeah. But it ends up being so much more somehow. Yeah, okay, so I have to go watch both of those now. Yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah, because Top Gun Maverick <laughs> was 100% my top movie of last year. Oh, nice. It is okay, unbelievably yeah. good. And nice. um, Ford v. Ferrari is also another fantastic movie just because of the quality with which they're able to depict the subject matter. And mm-hmm. also make a good movie, right? Because like Ford v Ferrari, like Josh was like, the music is the big thing for me because they match the music with the v- amazing cinematography to a way that makes it feel like you're going 200 miles an hour, right? Like the, it, it almost feels like they put you in the driver's seat, and like there's just these moments in the movie that pull you in to a ridiculous degree that is just like I don't know. It's it's so good. It's so good. Well, <laughs> thank you then <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome anyways do you have any other questions about this movie um no i mean i really was just looking for why you liked it and you it's no. described pretty well so yeah i mean it, it is a weird movie because i expected to like it because i like cars and racing and stuff but it wasn't mm-hmm. just that that i liked it i liked it because it was genuinely a really well-made movie and also you know matt damon is absolutely fantastic um christian bale's phenomenal in that movie like just all all the characters play their roles so well like there's absolutely no fault there again there's like like actually no so going back to my point earlier about the the whole like corporate america being the villain thing there's this scene where um like mr ford henry ford the second goes to um like they're at the race they're at le mans and he leaves like overnight basically in a helicopter right whereas it shows enzo ferrari sitting there the entire time basically like he's he's there the whole time so it's this very like one of them actually cares about the racing more which really changes your perspective and that's actually why he goes to fiat in the first place because ford's deal is that they'll be completely in charge of the racing, whereas Fiat's deal to Ferrari is, we'll let you do the racing still, which is a big thing for Enzo Ferrari, right? Who's this huge racing personality. He's won tons of races. He's absolute, like he's an absolute legend, right? And Ford is coming to him saying, look, we're going to buy your company, but you don't get to be in charge of your company anymore which is obviously not something he wants to do because as you see later, he cares so much about the racing itself and not about everything else because Ferrari from the beginning was a racing company, not a car company. And that really plays into it. I think with like, like Ford's whole Ford's whole motivation is to sell more cars. (laughs) No. Yeah. 
That's so interesting. It's kind of like a narrative about like like Ferrari, one of the biggest names in cars, right? Kind of being mm-hmm. forced to sell out, which sucks. Like nobody likes yeah. the feeling of selling out, right? No, absolutely. But like not. being presented with choices in the method in which you sell out and like how much you can uh like preserve of yeah. like your original company, like the different deals that you're willing to take. That's a really fascinating dichotomy, actually. Yeah, it's it's really it's really interesting because I feel like like it plays into it a bit too because it's really interesting because Shelby or Carol Shelby and Ken Miles, they they care about racing, but they're technically on the Ford team who care about selling cars. Whereas yeah. the person who it really seems like they're a lot closer to in terms of their their goals is Enzo Ferrari and the Ferrari racing team because they care so much about the racing. Like they are not that different. It's the Ford guys that actually care about the cars and are pushing most of the negative points, like plot points of the movie, honestly. Mm. That's really, yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely going to have to watch it now. Yeah, you should. It's really good. Yeah. Thanks, Ethan. (laughs) You bet. Have a good night. Hello. Ethan convinced me that I need to watch it. Oh, good. I'm glad he convinced you. I'm moving Ford (laughs) Ferrari forward, by the way. Sounds good. Yeah, I do think it's the better phone. That worked for me. Yeah, I'm glad he convinced you. Yes. Okay. It's okay. We're coming up on our odd Dustin Hoffman pairing. Yes, the Dustin Hoffman pairing. Stranger Did you than do Fiction. Or Dustin Hoffman? I have to ask. Maybe, maybe I did. I can't remember at this point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wanted to put Stranger Than Fiction on here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, Mr. McGoyne's Wonder Emporium is good. So maybe that was why. So that's my... Cool, Dustin Hoffman, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Dumbest thing about Stranger Than Fiction. There's some other thing that's called Stranger Than Fiction. Um, and when you go on to Google, it's like, Stranger Than Fiction, oh yeah, that's free on YouTube. But it's the other thing that's called Stranger Than Fiction. Did you get duped into watching Stranger Than Fiction, the wrong version? Start to get duped into it. Okay. <laughs> Until we started it and it was not the right thing. So, okay. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen either of these? You have seen Mr. McGorham's Wonder seen, Import. Yeah, I've actually seen both of them. Um, Stranger Than Fiction. Yeah. I watched in, I want to say middle school. <laughs> I watched it in like a friend's basement one time. Yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. And I remember, I really, really remember liking Stranger Than Fiction. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so for those in the audience who have not seen this movie, you're missing out and you should go watch it. True. According to Google, it's free on Pluto TV, but I don't know if that's true because that could just be the other stranger than fiction. (laughs) I think think that one's right. It was showing me like the whole movie box and it looked correct. So. Oh, good. So now I can actually watch it with Kendall. Okay. Stranger than fiction. 2006 American fantasy comedy drama film. How many more modifiers can you put in front of a word? Not very many more. It was directed by Mark Forster and written by Zach Helm. It stars Will Ferrell, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Dustin Hoffman, mm-hmm. Queen Latifah, and Emma Thompson. Um, and I think that is what part of what helps make this movie so great is because Will Ferrell is known for being crazy and flamboyant not well, you know, and um, just insane, right? In his roles, just crazy and weird. But 
he is so restrained and so awkward and normal in this movie. Like he he knew what he was supposed to do and he did it really really well. He doesn't. He, it's not a traditional Will Ferrell role. It's a little. It's a little bit like. Uh, oh, what's the guy's name? Are you thinking of Jim Carrey in the Truman yes. Show? Yes, Jim Carrey in the yeah. Truman Show, or like uh, the one that I haven't seen, the Eternal Sunshine on the Spotless Mind. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's it's this is Will Ferrell's movie where he shows that he isn't just an SNL cast member. Even in his most recent stuff, uh, that like the stuff that he's been allowed to write and direct, I feel like he leans a little bit too hard into the SNL persona. Like he's a little bit more absurdist. He's a little bit more uh, slapsticky. Whereas under the direction in this film and under the writing of this film, he really, really shines with a very nuanced but like still funny performance. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's I, just the, the the whole premise is funny enough that it just leans from, you know, into funniness or into comedy by the fact that it's so bizarre. So yeah. Harold Crick uh, is yeah. played by Will Ferrell. He is yeah. an IRS agent and he has he's like very scheduled. He's very strict. He's incredibly boring. Like this yeah. is a very boring man. Um, this man is the color beige. He is the color <laughs> beige. He is like the poster boy for the IRS. And he just lives his normal life. He does everything normally. And um, he starts auditing a baker named Anna Pascal, who is Mag- Maggie Gyllenhaal, who becomes his love interest. And uh, on the same day, he begins hearing the voice of a woman who is Emma Thompson in his head narrating his life. And at first, he's just like, well, that's weird, but it's just saying what he's doing, right? And then one time it says, like, this will result in his death. And he's like, what? <laughs> what did you say? I'm going to die? And he's it's like in an elevator with his coworkers, and it's really funny. And he starts, like, having this mental breakdown, like, this crisis of... Yeah. So then he goes and he visits a... He visits a um, a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist is like, "Well, you should go see a literary literary expert." Mm-hmm. You know, if if it's like there is like a narrator, and so he visits the literary literary professor Jules Hilbert, who which is uh, Dustin Hoffman's role, and he's like, "No, you're crazy." But then eventually, uh, they start to like determine, try to de- try to determine, uh, like who is narrating his life. Uh-huh. And then eventually, one day, uh, he sees his narrator on the t- TV, and it's an author named Karen Eiffel, played by Emma Thompson. And if I have, if I, I got to be honest, you know, if there's someone narrating my life, I would not be upset if it was Emma Thompson. <laughs> yeah, truly, yeah. she's a very nice voice to have around, carrying around in your head, huh? Yeah. Um, so then the thing with her books is that at the end, the protagonist always dies. Mm. And so she's a very strict literary fiction kind of writer, like no happy endings. I want to capture how bad the world is. (laughs) Yes. And she's like, she's, she's a mess. Mm. Oh, totally. Like she has like therapy that she needs to work through. (laughs) 
but yeah, this, this I, I was very specifically remember it's been years since i've seen this film i remember specifically a scene where she's like kind of standing at the edge of a building kind of hearing the like the lapel de vide the call of the void mm-hmm. right where she's just like do you think you die before you hit the ground or do you die when you hit the ground and like her friend or her therapist or whatever is just like what's wrong with you <laughs> yeah like i think yeah. she's like a personal assistant but yeah, i think you're right i think it's yeah. okay um but this becomes worse like she becomes way worse when she meets harold and realizes and, that she's going to actually kill a person yeah and like this not only just that she's going to kill a person but that like she likes harold she's starting to like relate to him and seeing that he is a real person with real feelings is really affecting her. Yes. So I'm yeah. not going to spoil the ending of this movie because I think people should go watch it. And I think that's a good enough hook that people will go watch it, especially if it's free on Pluto, go watch it. But it's just the, the kind of the, the two pronged attack on your heart, right? With Harold and the comedy drama that he is going through. He's like getting out of his shell. He's starting to really live his life for the first time since he learns that he's dying. And he's very relatable and very emotional in everything that he does. And it's really, really good. Uh-huh. Uh, on the other side, you have Emma Thompson's performance. I really think that Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson are the standouts in this movie. Yeah, there's <laughs> such an interesting... Uh like chemistry between them like mm-hmm. it's not really um like i guess you would could technically like categorize this as metafiction but like yeah. it's it doesn't feel like metafiction do you know what i mean because like like it's not reaching out of the fourth wall to grab the audience it's just it's breaking its own internal fourth wall it's kind of like a fifth wall that's like separating two have a set but like not reaching out into the fourth wall to mess with the audience. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Yeah. But like, it is a little bit meta still, and we don't really get to see the relationship between author and subject explored in this way a lot, at least not in a way that's as interesting and nuanced as this before. I feel like other people have done it and it doesn't work as well for me. Yeah. But in this film, it works really, really well. Well, I think that's because this movie has a very simple message and it's very sincere in the message that it's trying to tell you. And I think at that core, it's about the human experience and that life is wonderful and life is to be lived and not just passed by. Whether you are, whether you feel like you are the author or whether you feel like you are the character. Yeah, yeah. I think this movie is really good. I think a really interesting pair, like in another universe, would have been uh, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Because um, have be you seen good. that one? Yes, I, I love Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Yeah, me too, right? So, like, just because, like, you've kind of got this whole meta thing where, like, these men are kind of, like, living their day-to-day lives and then they're kind of, like, in their own way, in their own circumstances, forced to branch out and learn how to live a little bit more. And I think that that would be a really interesting comparison. I'm really sad that Secret Life of Walter Mitty never made it on the bracket, actually. I should have stuck him in somewhere (laughs) on mine. I think that could have been a really good replacement for Mr. McGorm's Wonder Report, but... That's okay. Let's do Mr. Megorium. It's there's only, novel. There's only 64 movies and, you know, there's thousands. And we can't just remove Mr. Megorium's War Emporium now because we've literally taken since the first episode. We have to do it. <laughs> Mr. Megorium's yep. War Emporium. Hey. 2007 children's fantasy comedy film. This came out it the year after. Wow. Written and directed by Zach Helm. It stars Dustin Hoffman, 
Natalie Portman and Jason Bateman are the top three. That's like yeah. also Zach Mills, who plays a nine year old. So if you haven't heard of him, it's because he was only a child actor. That's all he did. <laughs> yep. It's really kind of a small cast, and all of the actors in this movie are very well known and like successful, right? Like Natalie Portman, very well known, very famous. Dustin yeah. Hoffman, famous. Um, Jason Bateman, famous. So it's really interesting that they came together in this movie. I want you to tell me your experience with Mr. McGuire's Wonder Emporium. Um, hmm. I remember watching it like in the car. I think what must have happened is like at some point for a road trip, mom went and bought a bunch of cheap DVDs. I think this is like right before the age of Redbox, right? Where mm-hmm. we could just get DVDs at like any Maverick. Like she bought a bunch of cheap DVDs and just had them in the car for us to watch on the little portable DVD screens mm-hmm. because otherwise we would scream. Um, <laughs> It's been so long since I've seen it that I don't know if I would be a very good judge of whether it's actually good or not. But I do remember (laughs) being touched by it. And the more I think about and remember it, the more I do feel like it's a pretty relatable message, right? Like it's Mm -hmm. you've got Natalie Portman's character. What's her name? Molly Mahoney. Yes. Who is the former child prodigy pianist kind of washed up trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life. Um, and then you've got, you know, the, the Jason Bateman's character, the kind of uptight accountant, uh, very stereotypical, you know, like the it, it's a very hallmarky, like the accountant that needs to find a little bit of magic in his life meets the whimsical toy store owner who also needs to find healing. And they're brought together by the whimsical old elf that is Dustin Hoffman, who may or may not be <laughs> immortal. Except, well, he dies, but that's fine. Uh, yeah. Well, but he's um, like really he's yeah. 243 years old. No, yeah, like, he's, like, old, and he's, like, kind of choose, he's decided that this is his time to move on, right? Like yes. He, uh-huh. He's, yeah, he's kind of the ageless immortal, kind of tired of living, ready to move on to the next stage in his, in the universe, right? Yeah. Um, I also think, I also think it's important that he doesn't act like a tired yeah. immortal, right? Like he, he's not, it's not that he's tired of life. It's that yeah, this it's is just his that time. he's ready for something else. Yeah, it's just his time. And I think... There, the film also does something really interesting in that he's the ageless immortal who has never gotten tired of children, which is like why he runs the toy store, right? He finds such wonder and joy in the imaginations of children, mm-hmm. which like I don't think that there actually are enough films that celebrate what children are to children. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like uh-huh. there, especially in more modern times, you've got things like. The emoji movie comes to mind where it's just there to entertain children, uh-huh. but it's not telling children that the things that they have to offer are of value. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, but I, like I think that. it's extremely important that children are taught that they have value, even as children, because <laughs> like it's like otherwise you get people like Molly, right, who kind of believe that their talent has passed them by and they don't mm-hmm. know what to do. With it. And I also I've always really really liked the scene. I've watched, I actually, I think I watched it a few weeks ago preparing for this. I've now forgotten about it. Um, but like where he uses the notes about King Lear. Um, yes. Like right before he like actually like ex- exit Mr. Mergorium. Uh-huh. Uh, like just talking about like how, you know, how simple death uh-huh. is and how easy it is. 
um, and how Molly shouldn't be like grieving him so particularly because like it's just it's just death, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important message for kids too, right? Because mm-hmm. in media, it's so often like death is a tragic thing and it's long and it's drawn out and it's emotional and mm-hmm. it's you know this whole this whole performance and death in real life doesn't work that way people die doing all sorts of things and in mm-hmm. all sorts of ways and it's just it happens right yeah you die he dies is how mr mcgorian puts it he died yep he just um, it's simple he just he dies yeah I think that part really missed is how maybe maybe I'm putting this movie higher up than I should be just because it's <laughs> it's been a little while. It's I'm, maybe I'm a like I'm like putting it. I'm like I'm like uh, putting my soul into the body of a child, right? And like totally, this is yeah. so good for kids. <laughs> this is such a good movie for kids because it mm-hmm. celebrates being a child. It says it says you're a child, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, it also says to adults, you don't have to lose your childhoodness, right? Because that's what, uh, what's his name? Uh, the mutant. <laughs> uh, uh, Jason Amos character, Henry Weston. He's just yeah. like serious. He like doesn't smile. He's an accountant and he's an adult, right? And over the course of the movie, he discovers who he is. And discovers the magic of remembering childhood and being a child still, right? Um, And then it deals with death, and it says, you know, death is something that happens, and they're not going to shy away from that, but they're going to just tell you upfront how real it is, and Mm -hmm. I think that's really powerful. And being able to move on past that is really powerful. I think every character in this movie has a very role to play in your life at some point right uh eric the nine-year-old you can get into his mind as a nine-year-old right as a kid yeah, like you kind of got like the lonely kid you've kind of got the disaffected accountant you've kind of got the pianist who has lost faith in herself and then you've got mm-hmm. the most mature of them all mr mcgorham <laughs> yeah and it's about mr mcgorham's character is about balancing the um the craziness of life with the joy of life talking about this movie with you i'm not actually i was leaning first towards stranger fiction stranger than fiction and now i'm a little less sure of myself what do you think i think it would require like a real actual rewatch of both of these um but i think i'm going to i'm going to tell you to stay the course and keep going for stranger than fiction because I think it's good, and it's like it's a little bit more adult. I don't know. <laughs> we are adults, just and it deals with similar things, right? It deals with death, and it deals with uh, not being sure, and it, it deals with living your life, right? And that's I think that is the really important part of both of those movies. Maybe that's why I picked yep. it with Mr. McGoran because it's about living your life. Just happened to have Dustin Hoffman. Okay, the final lineup. Bum, ba, da, dum, bum, bum. Henry V, the 1989 version, the Kenneth Branagh version, because this is of course. during the era where Kenneth Branagh made everything Shakespeare, and he was every part of his movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then uh, we are putting that up against Romeo plus Juliet. 
1996 version of Romeo and Juliet directed, produced, and co-written by Boz Lerman. Boz Lerman. Have we talked about Boz Lerman all previously on this? I don't think he's actually made it in, um, which is kind of a shame because he's certainly, I think, the most stylistic of the uh, the directors we have on here. I think um, he's one of the most unique directors, right, in his sure. vision. I, I don't know if subtlety is in his vocabulary, <laughs> uh, but it is at least a feast for the eyes. So. That's okay, because, you know, there are other people who have subtlety, and yeah. he he's all about presenting a show. Yeah, he, he knows exactly what he's here for, and he doesn't apologize for it. Let's talk about Henry V first. Yes. Um, have you seen this version of Henry V? I've not seen this version of Henry V. I think the last time I saw Henry V at all was in an abridged version at like Shakespeare in the Park. Okay. Um, so I don't know if I can add a ton of nuance to this. No but worries. I, do, I actually, I actually, you know, I have seen from my university library. I got the DVDs of like this entire like it's like Henry IV, Henry V, and Henry VI. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, just the historical plays, right? Um, and I think it was Tom Hiddleston starred as Henry V in like this set of BBC dramas. I don't even remember what they're called. I'd have to look them up. I know it had <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch in it at some point. It had Tom Hiddleston in it. I think it had probably Patrick Stewart because he's in everything Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but the one thing that really struck me about have we done the introduction you can go ahead and do the introduction first and i'll get into what i know about henry the fifth henry the fifth is a this is the 1989 version um it was adapted and directed by kenneth branagh and stars kenneth branagh and paul schofield and derek jacoby and ian holm and brian blessed emma thompson alec mccohen judy dench dame judy dench sorry uh, oh. Christian Bale, Robbie Coltrane, basically like there was this era of British actors and mm. just about everyone who wasn't like Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen that's from this era were in this movie. It's very, very, very stuffed full of British people because this is, I think, I don't think that I am being very controversial when I say that this is the definitive edition or the definitive version of Henry V. If you're looking for a benchmark for Henry V, watch this movie. This is also, you know, I think this is one of the reason that I put this up against Romeo plus Juliet is because I think that this is one of the best Shakespeare adaptations. So nice. Okay, so I did find the other version that I was talking about, and it's called The Hollow Crown. It was on the BBC. Um, they also, so The Hollow Crown came first, and it was an adaptation of Richard II, Henry IV, and Henry V. Um, and then they made uh, War of the Roses, which was uh, actually earlier, the Henry VI um, mm-hmm. and Richard III. Nice. The, the Henry ad. The, the Henry ad, yeah. And it's um, it was produced by Sam Mendes, so I think that's the selling point for oh, you. Oh, cool. Heck yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the, the one thing that I find really interesting about Henry V, especially when you take it in context with Henry IV, is how much you get to see how or Henry grow as a character between the plays because mm-hmm. in Henry the fourth you very much see him from his father's perspective he is a young kid full of bright-eyed ambition you know like very confident maybe a little bit cocky and then in Henry the fifth you see him 
struggling to live up to his father's legacy to protect the crown you know all of these things um yeah <laughs> yeah uh, it's, i was trying to remember um like this is what you get like, like you, you this is like one of shakespeare's most famous speeches right is yes uh once more into the breach my friends um the and the saint crispin's day speech another really famous one we few yeah. we happy few Mm-hmm. We band of brothers. I also, <laughs> this is a random fun fact, but uh, the Act Five uh, scene where Henry is trying to woo Catherine of Valois, <laughs> but he doesn't speak French and she doesn't speak English. Yes, I uh, I remember watching that scene for the first time, and my friend Taylor was in that scene for our sh- our school's uh, Shakespeare uh, thing, before Shakespeare nice. Festival. I, she learned a lot of French for that, and I'm pretty sure she still knows the French. So, oh, uh, awesome. shout out to my friend Talia. Yeah. Um, I'm going to bring up three different scenes from this movie. And, you know, they're from this play, too, right? Because this is all about this play. Yeah, it's the play. Um, so let's talk first about that scene, right? Where he is talking with uh, the Catherine. French Catherine. Yeah. And it is so funny. Mm-hmm. Just the way that it's... And I think that's when, you know, I think we've talked about before when we read William Shakespeare, it's like, Oh, it's boring and dry. Maybe we haven't talked about this, actually. But I don't know. I can't remember. Anyways, we're like, oh, this is boring. This is dry. This is the worst. And watching a scene like this, you understand the comedy. You understand the humanity. And I think that's where William Shakespeare is relevant to this day. This is ability to inject scenes, inject his characters with very relatable humanity. How I think it's so funny that Henry V, he is this king he is super powerful he is he just won this battle against the french against all odds and he is so awkward in talking <laughs> yeah. to this french queen or this french princess mm-hmm. so i think that's really funny in particular sorry in this scene when um he's talking to her he's and he like they come back the french royal nobility comes back he's like here comes your father. It's like it's like they're caught in the act, right, of being these these funny lovers kind of thing. So it's, it feels a little bit like you're a teenage boy and you're about to kiss, like this. There's this teenage boy about to kiss his girlfriend, right? And then like the dad is like looking out the window with, and he's like, "Oh, it's I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly at all, but it's just funny the way that it's 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 just funny in the way that it's like relatable because there's these awkward moments in our life. Of all of Shakespeare's plays. The history ones, the Henry out are my least favorite. <laughs> like I haven't seen half of them. Like I, I don't. I, they're kind of like the World War Two movies of Shakespeare to me. Do you know what? It, like they're just uh, kind of all the same. And like while they do, there. yeah, and like they do cover similar themes, like the other Shakespeare plays do. Like there's he's it's him trying to find humanity in these situations, right? Um. But like at the same time, like I understand that people find it boring, and I'm not going to disagree with you if you do. Like that's just taste, right? That's just yeah. everybody's got their own taste. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I, not having seen this specific one, I can't attest to how good or bad it is. But mm-hmm. like there, like you said, there is always in a Shakespeare play something to find in terms of humor, in terms of. Uh, relatability in terms of laughter um so the second scene that i was going to talk about um which is well known as a good scene of discussion in um 
just this is I've seen this outside of the play itself, right? So uh-huh. this is a thing that has more to do with the play, kind of like I was talking about with than just this in own individual part of it. But it's when uh, Henry V goes <clears throat> in disguise among his troops uh, and dis- discusses with them different things, kind of gauges their morale. And he has this discussion with one of the uh, soldiers about uh, like who's responsible for, if a soldier dies, who is responsible, the king or the soldier for that death, right? Uh, and that's really interesting to put into that, right? Because that's still a discussion that you have to this day, mm-hmm. about, right? About who who's responsible for doing things, who has personal responsibility in any yeah. situation, right? And mm-hmm. I think it's important that just because, just because, let's I'll put this put you in the situation here. Just because your king is telling you to do something does not remove your personal responsibility, right? Just because your king is ordering does not mean that you are not responsible for the things that you do for your own actions. I think it's important to... Obviously, I'm not saying, like, you're responsible for your king's decision. That's his responsibility. But you're making a decision in that act to let someone else decide your fate for you i think that's really interesting because then you get um henry's monologue about like how much pressure he feels that he's under Mm -hmm. in having to protect his people right and then uh, looking at looking at them uh i I have seen clips of this out of context and i remember like when he's carrying christian bale's child character like off the battlefields because he has also been killed and like it's clear that he feels some amount of personal responsibility for that um and like it's not exactly absolving Henry, but it like again, it's the nuance, right? It's that he does n- realize that he has responsibility. Like it's also his responsibility to do something to protect his people, right? Yeah. Like he has he has responsibilities as king. Yeah, like he's got responsibilities as king. Do they outweigh his responsibilities as a general? Do they outweigh his responsibilities mm-hmm. as? you know, like a citizen of England as of yes. all of these things. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, it poses a series of really, really interesting questions that, you know, it's Shakespeare. If you like Shakespeare, like <laughs> I do, this is the kind of thing that you evangelize. <laughs> like there's interesting nuance and in, like in all of the different adaptations of Shakespeare that there have been over the years, like this is the kind of thing that really interests Shakespeare scholars is because yeah. like you can play this in so many different ways. And I think the way that Kenneth Branagh plays it is really Interesting, you know, like the burdens yes. of the game. Just it, yeah, mm-hmm. very good. Mm-hmm. That that was the third scene I was going to talk about. Is that that's that's a four minute long tracking shot, and the music the music starts small and builds and grows, and it's a very melancholy sort of feeling where they've won this battle, but there is a cost, right? And this after the triumph of the Saint Christian's Day speech, right? Yeah, and it and it kind of bookends bookends the discussion. And it bookends that speech because there are glorious moments in battle and then there are more somber moments. So so that's uh, Henry V. And Henry v. Hey, Romeo plus Juliet. Romeo plus Juliet. I've not seen all of Romeo plus Juliet either, but I have seen actual Romeo and Juliet several times. And I can I feel okay. like I can defend it better than I can defend Henry V. Okay. Uh, still. I <laughs> don't know. 
I think that will do well, right, to discuss Romeo and Juliet. But I also mm-hmm. think that you can't talk about this movie without talking about the Baz Luhrmann of it. Oh, Baz Luhrmann. Always. It is so yeah. <laughs> unique. Even, even among Romeo and Juliet adaptations, it stands out. Totally. And it's because just everything Baz Luhrmann does stands out. Because yes. he just loves color. He loves glitter. He loves bump. He loves bombast, basically. <laughs> is bombast a verb? I don't know. Bombasticism? I don't know. He likes being bombastic. There you yes. go. Uh, I will start this by saying what my uh, theater teacher in high school, Mr. Shelley, said about this movie. He said, the first half of the movie, he was rolling in his grave. Like He was like, Shakespeare is rolling in his grave. This is the greatest offense to <laughs> Romeo and Juliet and to Shakespeare <laughs> ever. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the movie, he said, this is magnificent. This is so inventive and creative and such a work of art in the way Uh that it portrays things so wholeheartedly. That wasn't all. I I trailed off of his direct quote onto my my own quote. But Uh I'll tell tell you what is is so good about this movie. You've seen parts of this, right? Oh, you know... You know, at the beginning, everything is flashy. Everything is quick. Everything yep. is so so energetic and over the top. Um, mm-hmm. I love all of the actors. I'm gonna sorry. I'm gonna roll back a little bit. 1996, directed by Baz Luhrmann. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Claire Danes, Brian Dennehy, John Leguizamo, Pete Postlewaite, Paul Sorbino, and Diane. Uh, Viorna and probably more people. It's a really big cast because it's Romeo and Juliet. Um, and it's set in quote unquote modern day where the Capulets and the Montagues, instead of being two families, they're two rival business empires. And so there's guns and there's swords, but they only use original text from Romeo and Juliet. So they say, like, my sword, right? For their gun instead of, or like, my dagger, right? Yep. Um, and so there's this really jarring thing where you have this like punk gangster character <laughs> who is Benvolio, who mm-hmm. is spouting off pure Shakespearean speech, right? And he's got like a super bright shirt on, and it's open, so you can see his bare chest. And he's got like a cross necklace, and he's got like his guns on him, right? And it's so bright, and everything going forward right it starts energetic and it moves into the party at the juliet's house i can't remember which is which juliet is a capulet you're right juliet capulet party is energetic and wild and then romeo and juliet meet and it's passionate and close and everything is worried because they're in love right and it keeps Mm -hmm. going and keeps going and keeps going and the energy just maintains the whole movie all this happens right so they get married you you know the plot of romeo and juliet they get married tybalt encounters mercutio and romeo mercutio is mortally wounded defending romeo from tybalt and then in his anger romeo slays tybalt in, in exchange this is this is the scene though this is the scene that mm, is okay. stuck in my head Ooh. um so it's a car chase mercutio dies tybalt has already run off Romeo starts chasing him. He's just mad. He's so angry. And like he's like crying angry tears, right? And they end up at a fountain 
and Tybalt has like his arms spread and Romeo has his gun on Tybalt and Romeo shoots him and in that moment you can see the pain in Romeo's eyes right that this is a mistake that he's made that he is continuing he's continuing the legacy of violence and revenge and that's when it stops the energy going 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 it stops right there Ooh, oh excellent oh yes i love that the importance of what he has just done that this is setting up for the second half of the movie the lights do not get as bright as they were the first half the colors are not as flamboyant the energy is not as high from now on it's like it's scary right it's Romeo is now facing the consequences of his actions. His life is no longer a party. Juliet's mm-hmm. life is no longer a party. Now mm-hmm. it's about surviving. Yeah. Okay. So. Literally, of all of the things you could have said about this movie, this of anything illustrates to me that Boz Lerman gets it. Boz Lerman. So many people. And Juliet. Various versions of Romeo and Juliet, and they don't get it through their thick skulls, and it makes me so mad because everybody complains about how bad of a play Romeo and Juliet. It's not a bad play. It's not a sad love story. It's a tragedy about two families perpetuating the cycle of violence. <laughs> and and how, like, right, right. Romeo is so caught up in loving Juliet and thinking that he can break this cycle of violence. But yeah, he and can't. he's going to break the cycle of violence, but then he gets too caught up in his anger and yes. he per- ends up perpetuating it anyway. And that's why they have to die because they didn't manage to break the circle. And I think that's what's important too, right? Is, is the, if you're trying to break something like this, if you're trying to break a cycle mm-hmm. that has been forced on you, beware that you don't, because it's easier to slip into that than you think, right? That's what it's saying. It's so easy. It's so much easier than you think to perpetuate the cycle. And like, and the thing about Romeo and Julia is that it tells you that right from the beginning. Like, it's mm-hmm. telling you, "Hey, this isn't a happy love story. This is going to end badly." <laughs> and yeah. like, I really wish that they would do a better job of teaching kids this play because, like, I was one of the people that learned it in ninth grade English, right? <laughs> And, like, like there are a lot of theories that people have about, like, oh, it's to scare kids out of, like, premarital sex or, like, out of marrying early, right? Like, no, that's not the point. The point is that you've got these two people from different sides of, like, two people, like, it says, right, two houses both alike in dignity. They're so much more similar than they realize, but they're not willing to look past their superficial differences mm-hmm. to realize that, you know? <laughs> like, and I, like, and it's the kind of thing... Like it looks stupid from the outside, and it's because it is because like teenagers more than anyone like are observing these differences that we have in our societies, right, and they're trying to break them, yeah. but because of the stubbornness of the ages, we're still not willing to put the things down, right like it just, I don't know, uh, I'm getting angry, and I'm not finding good words. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet was never a love story. it was always a cautionary tale. That's the hill I'm gonna die on, <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's not about it's not about the romance. It's about the effects of yeah. the families and the effects that the these emotions have on each other, right? Yeah, the and fact- I'm so glad that Boz Lerman and all of his bombastic glory realizes what the story is about. That makes me happy. <laughs> Go on. I mean, that's all I really have to say. So, yeah. So, um, what do you think should win this? Because I'm really conflicted. I don't know, man. Um, 
I mean, you're the only one of us that has seen these two films in their entirety. Yeah, that's why I'm conflicted. Um, I don't know. I'm a little bit I'm tempted to push Romeo plus Juliet out of spite. I was I would say that too, just because it's such a unique. Mm-hmm. It's so. Like, it's so different from anything that you would expect. Mm-hmm. And if I want people to go watch, as much as I love Henry V, if I want people to go watch a Shakespeare movie, I think I want them to watch Romeo. this Romeo plus Juliet. I mean, maybe they won't see what I see. Maybe they'll just be like, oh, this is really weird. Maybe they'll see the impression that this that we've been talking about, right? Cool. We've done it. That's all of them. Oh my Woo-hoo. gosh, we're done. <laughs> well, not done, done. We're one step closer. We're, we're closer. One more. Okay, so you wanted to do the Sweet 16 were the movies that we watch, right? Yeah, so, like, if we can get through the 32 just rapid fire, like, even right now, I would be Mm -hmm. okay with that. Yeah, I was actually thinking we could just Um, do that. And then we can watch the Sweet 16, and then we'll do the Sweet 16, and we'll eliminate from there. As much as some of these will pain me to just just buzz through, I think, it's best that we do this. Yeah, rapid fire, it has to be your first impression. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to start on your side or my side? Uh, Let's do your side. Let's start just with Emma and Much Ado. Okay, Emma and Much Ado. Um, I said rapid fire and then I froze. (laughs) One, two, three, Much Ado. Much Ado. Okay, great, Much Ado. Okay, good. Okay, um, Decoy Bride versus Everything Everywhere. I'm going to give you Everything Everywhere all at once. Yeah, absolutely. It's your... I think we have like a golden buzzer, right? We have one golden buzzer that one we buzzer, can yeah. use on our sides. Well, like, especially sh- up against Decoy Bride, like that has to go through. Like that was yeah. always going to go through over that. Yeah. Yeah. Inception via okay. rear window. Uh oh gosh. Uh oh no. I love both these movies too much. Inception. That's what I was saying. So Yeah. Okay. Uh Knives Out versus Arrival. Mm. Knives Out versus Arrival. One, two, three. Knives Out. Okay. I was thinking, I was going to say Knives Out too. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just think it'll be, it'll come across a little choppy if we try to both say it at the same time. Sure. Okay. So, I'm going to say Wally on this one just because I haven't seen Cagliostro. That's okay. Wally is, I think it's probably stronger. Um, okay. But you should see Cagliostro at some point. I think you would enjoy it. Okay. Um, okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mononoke as well for me, I think. I just feel like it's. I don't. I, personally, I like Mononoke better, but that's you know. That's no, a, same here. Yeah. There's been much debated among in the halls of the internet. Um, and so hang on, gonna... give me two seconds. I'm gonna find uh, what we put forward for Pacific Rim because oh, yeah. I don't actually remember. Pacific Rim um, Legally Blonde. Yeah, Screenwalkers Pod deck. Uh, luckily, this episode is done, and Yay. I can check the website. Check our website, screenwalkerspod.com, for show notes. Whoa. Um, wait, dang it. No, I only have through Spirited Away up there. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Um, okay. Well, I guess it doesn't matter, because whatever between Pacific Grimm and Legally Blonde, it's not going to win against the Truman Show, so Truman Show advances. Yeah, Truman Show. Okay, and then uh, Uncle Jojo, I think Jojo. Jojo, yeah. Okay, your side. Coco okay. versus... Uh, well, no, it was Coco versus 42. 42, yeah. Okay, 42. I was going to say Coco, but... Oh, you were going to say Coco? Okay, no, it's okay. Go ahead and put Coco through. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, now I'm conflicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll do Coco. You have to pick quickly. Do Coco. Oh. I, I will say Coco as well. Interstellar. 
Interstellar as well. Yeah. Okay. We're going to come back to that one. We're going to come back to that one. Okay. Selma versus the Batman. I'm going to say Selma. Mostly because you haven't seen it. Also because Batman kind of got through by the skin of its teeth. So. Yeah, that's fair. Was it Doctor Strange versus Black Panther or Thor Ragnarok? Which one? I can't remember. That's the problem. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, okay. Wilder People versus Tiger Hunter. I'm going to say Wilder People, as much as I love Tiger Hunter. What advanced here yesterday versus Ford v. Ferrari? Ford v. Ferrari. Okay. Uh, Stranger Than Fiction versus, what was it, Romeo plus Juliet? Romeo plus Juliet, yeah. Ooh... This is not a matchup that I saw coming. Quickly, quickly, yeah. Um, Stranger Than Fiction. Okay, and then let's come back. Uh- <laughs> okay, I, 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 I'm going to have to say Prince of Egypt for Prince of Egypt versus. Yeah. But you liked 1917 so much. Yeah, but Prince of Egypt, I also really, really love. So. It's it's also very good. Okay, that's you know I will accept that Prince of Egypt can move forward. I showed you 1917, so we don't. I don't have to like force you to watch it. All right. That's fair. Okay, we should talk about 1917 in like isolation at some point because okay. maybe we can do like a focus on war movies or something. Because I think it's a pretty good war movie. I'm glad you'll think so. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I think it's the best war movie I've seen. Like, it's hopeful, and like despite mm-hmm. being rated r it wasn't particularly bleak i thought I like it didn't revel in its bleakness it was accurate in yeah. its bleakness but it wasn't reveling in it do you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah it wasn't like it wasn't like it didn't make you go is the director masochistic yeah <laughs> right we don't have to exactly, put that right. yeah i guess we have to choose again between black panther and thor ragnarok because we don't remember what made it through yeah um, what are you thinking? This is your side of the bracket. I'll let you steer it. So here's how I'm feeling. I feel like if I put Black Panther through, Doctor Strange will win. I feel like if I put Thor Ragnarok through, it'll be it'll be more of a toss up. Okay, interesting. That's how I see these movies right now. Does that make sense? Um, go for Thor Ragnarok then, if it's going to be that. No, much I'm not sure. No, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah. want decisions in my life. No decisions. Okay. Now let's do Black Panther and let's push it through. Okay. Push it through past Doctor Strange as well? Yes. Okay. Awesome. Because I think it would match well against Wilder People, I think Thor Ragnarok would be too much of a direct comparison with Taika Waititi. And I'm glad Taika Waititi got to the Sweet 16, so. Yeah. Okay, let me hang on. I'm going to open up my notes app here, and I'm just going to record what our Sweet 16 are so that we don't forget. Cool. Join us next time. I like this bracket because we've got some heavy hitters, and I think we've got some underdogs too, so it'll be exciting to see how it progresses from here. Yeah, it'll be really interesting. Thanks so much for listening to us and all of our crazy, insane ramblings. Join us next time for the final episode of our uh, favorite films movie tournament. Where we determine a winner through blood sport. And we'll actually have all seen all of the films, so we can actually yeah. have real discussions about them. I really, want, I really want to watch, take each of these pairings and watch them back to back and mm-hmm. just do review, like be in person reviewing them, right? So that I can mm-hmm. really determine which one I like better in the moment. So yes. I don't have to think about it afterwards and then we can move on and not talk about movies anymore we can talk about other things
Yeah. Like video games. Like video games and books. I'm so excited and to talk books. about books. Oh, oh books my god. Books is going to be so good. I have read you are going to laugh at me when I say this. Can okay. you guess in the it's technically the 11th now because it's midnight like 1208 on my end. But in the 10 days of 2023, how many books have I read? Um 10. No, actually I've read 7. You're pretty close. <laughs> Nice. <laughs>